1 Corinthians chapter 4, and we're going to begin at verse 1. This, then, is how you ought to regard us, as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. For who makes you different from anyone else? And what did you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have begun to reign, and that without us. How I wish that you really had begun to reign, so that we also might reign with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored, we are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags, we are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. I am writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers, for in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I have sent you to Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Some of you have become arrogant, as if I were not coming to you, but I will come to you very soon, if the Lord is willing, and then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline, or shall I come in love and with a gentle spirit? 
This is God's Word. Thanks, Phoebe. Uh, my name's Phil. I'm the Associate Minister here. It's lovely to have you with us. Uh, let's pray and let's get into God's Word together. Father God, we pray that you would give us your mind this morning. We pray that you would free our hearts from the love of comfort now and help us to long for heavenly glory and be willing to take up our cross in the meantime. Amen. What do you expect life to look like if you follow Jesus? Whether you consider yourself a Christian already or still looking into these things, what do you think life will look like if you follow the triumphant, risen, reigning Lord Jesus, the one who's conquered sin and death? Well, the church that Paul is writing to in Corinth in AD 55, they thought they knew the answer to that question. They expected, look, if we're following the risen, triumphant Lord Jesus Christ, then life for us will be wealth and comfort and success. And so they wanted their church and their church leaders to be models of that. Now, Corinth was a city that loved impressive leaders, charismatic speakers, wealthy entrepreneurs. It was a a place of X factor. It was TED Talks. It was a place where when you had wealth, you really, you you blinged it up. uh, There's there's somebody around here who's got a convertible Lamborghini, which is covered. The entire thing is covered in red diamantes. You'll see it, and they're always around in August. That's, That's a Corinthian car. If you've got the money for a red diamante-encrusted Lamborghini, then that's what you spend your money on, and that's how you arrive at church in Corinth. (laughs) And you see, the problem in Corinth is that when the church isn't being persecuted, which it wasn't in Corinth, well, then you can start to feel like, well, we can, we can kind of fit in with the culture around us and we can, we can have Jesus. We can have everything the world has and Jesus. We can, we can fit in with the world and we can be Christians. And what ends up happening is what was happening at Corinth. You start to squeeze the Bible, squeeze following Jesus into the mold of the world. You, try, you start trying to do Christianity in a Corinthian way or for us, a London way. And so what was going on in Corinth is that they stressed Jesus is the mighty king, but they just kind of ignored the fact that he died on a cross. They stressed as Christians, we're forgiven and we're free. But they ignored the fact that we're called to fight our sin every day. They stressed we've got the Holy Spirit of God living in us. They kind of ignored that the Holy Spirit teaches us to live humble, self-sacrificial lives of service. They stressed, we reign with Jesus Christ. They ignored the fact that it's the cross and then the crown. And these Corinthian attitudes, they are alive and well and flourishing in the West today. Uh, The shelves of Christian bookshops are groaning under the weight of books which you will not find in our book table today. Uh, Your best life now, hashtag blessed and And we might be immune to the the slightly more crass versions of of the the private jet-flying prosperity preachers. But here's where it's sharp for you and me, I think. Let me ask you a question. When do you expect life to work out if you follow Jesus? When do you expect things things to come together? Now, we're part of a culture where comfort is one of our great idols, and, and we seek comfort, we long for it. And so when suffering comes, our automatic reaction is to, is to want it to disappear quickly and not to see God's providential hand and his good purposes in it. 
So perhaps we understand that even as Christians, there will be some periods for most of us of financial hardship, of health scares, of relational breakdown. But we have this kind of unspoken assumption that those periods will be quite brief, and always, always, they'll be followed by things getting much richer and much better. We expect that if we follow the triumphant risen Lord Jesus, that everything will work out in this life. But that's not what Jesus promised, and it's not what Paul teaches us here today. Now, this chapter of 1 Corinthians 4 is primarily about faithful ministers and faithful ministry. What what does a faithful minister look like, a a faithful church leader? But but the passage is not only relevant as you you perhaps look at churches and think, well, uh, what's a sensible church to get involved in? How do, you, how do I weigh up what a church leader should look like? Because as you look down at uh, verses 16 and 17 of chapter 4, you see that Paul ends by saying, Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. Paul makes it clear that faithful ministers are models. So as the Holy Spirit teaches us through 1 Corinthians 4 uh, what a faithful minister should look like, He's also teaching us what God wants from you. This is God's pattern for all of us as we seek to live lives obeying Jesus in his world. Just two big points for you, really. Uh, Faithfully teach the message of the cross and faithfully live the life of the cross. Firstly, uh, verses 1 to 7, faithfully teach the message of the cross. The first thing that God wants from us is faithfulness to the message of the cross. So chapter 4, verse 1. This, then, is how you ought to regard us, as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. In chapter 3, Paul said, look, just stop stressing about Christian leaders. Would you stop uh, getting so excited about whether you follow this leader or that leader or you've been shaped by this leader or that leader? I mean, who really cares? He says, it's God who grows churches. It's God who forgives sins. It's it's God who provides you with the Holy Spirit. So stop getting so excited about human ministers. Okay, so how should we think about them? Verse one, it's servants and stewards. Uh, The phrase those entrusted translates the word for a steward. A steward is someone who's given responsibility, who's entrusted a, a wealthy owner's land or their money and is told to look after it and make good use of it. And we're told that we are servants of Christ and entrusted with the mysteries of God, the mysteries he's revealed. That's the fundamental job of a minister, to faithfully pass on the mysteries that God has revealed. That is the gospel, the wonderful truth of who God is and how he saved us, which is a mystery. Uh, Paul explained in chapters one and two, no human would ever have guessed it. You'd never get a working party having a brainstorm and come up with, uh, God should redeem the world by, by dying a shameful death as a human being on a cross. It's just not what humans would have come up with. The cross looks like weakness and folly. It's a mystery to us. God has to reveal it. But actually, this is God's power for salvation. And so in chapter 2, verse 4, Paul explained that when he came to to Corinth, my message and my preaching were not wise and persuasive words, but a demonstration of the Spirit's power as he proclaimed Christ and him crucified, chapter 2, verse 2. God has entrusted the life-saving, sin-destroying, 
forgiving, death-defeating message of the gospel to us. And so a faithful minister is one who faithfully teaches that message that focuses on the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, because it is God's message, God's mysteries, God's gospel, it is God's verdict that truly matters. Verse 2 of chapter 4. Now, it is required that those who've been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human courts. Indeed, I don't even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Paul really couldn't care less that he doesn't measure up to the Corinthian image of an impressive minister. Who cares? He said, I'm not going to stand before you on judgment day. Who cares what you think? He's going to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. So warning to them and to us, stop making worldly judgments about ministers and churches. Stop being swayed by how impressive the growth is, how captivating the music, how inspiring the talks. He says, look, we need to be humble and recognize, verse 5, there's an awful lot that's hidden at the moment and that will only be truly exposed on judgment day. It's only then we'll really know the, the heart motivations of the people involved. Well, in the meantime, it's not that we can't work out anything. In the meantime, he encourages us, assess churches by the right criteria. Look for faithfulness to the cross, not, not just a cross on the building, not just the mention of the cross every now and then, but is the cross at the center of everything that's taught? Because it's only God's verdict that counts. So it's God's cross we must proclaim. Only God's verdict matters. That's true as you assess ministries, churches, but it's also generally true for each and every one of us here this morning. Look, many people see your life. Many people make assessments of you in different realms every day. But it is the audience of one that really matters. God's verdict is the one that determines your eternal destiny, heaven or hell. No other voice, no other verdict, no other judgment matters compared with that. Now, there's a very interesting implication to this in verse 4. Living for God's approval means Paul is liberated from being a slave to what others think. But it also, it also affects how he views himself. He says at the end of verse 3, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Now, conscience is your inner sense of right and wrong. That's what conscience is. You're the, the inner court that determines whether what you're doing, thinking, saying is right or wrong. But Paul acknowledges here, even when the Holy Spirit lives in you, even when you're an apostle of God, your conscience can get it wrong. Now, sometimes consciences are too sensitive. I was sat uh, a wee while ago with someone who didn't go forward for the Lord's Supper at church, and as we were chatting afterwards, I realized actually they, there was no reason for that. Their conscience was just oversensitive about an issue. And as we were talking, I was able to say, look, I think your conscience is wrong here. I don't think there's anything for you to worry about. You are fully forgiven and you're fully welcome at Jesus' table. 
the other end of the scale from people whose consciences are too sensitive, I've sat with a married friend who's told me, look, I, my, my conscience is at rest, my heart is at peace, as he began an affair. His conscience just wasn't sensitive enough. In our culture, conscience is the ultimate court from which there is no appeal. If I'm true to my heart, that is all that matters. But if even the Apostle Paul says, look, I... <laughs> My conscience is clear, but that doesn't make me innocent. Only the Lord really knows what's going on in my heart. Well, then we ought to be a little bit more humble. We ought to recognize we too can be wrong and to be humble. Uh, the Puritan commentator Matthew Henry wisely declared, they do not know themselves best who think best of themselves. Isn't that wonderful? They do not know themselves best who think best of themselves. People with a high self-opinion tend to be people with low self-awareness. So be humble. Be humble. Before we move on, it is rather lovely that as we hear of God's assessment of our lives and ministry, verse 5 tells us God is he's just waiting to reward and praise us for what we've done faithfully as we serve him. Isn't that lovely? God is just waiting to reward and praise, verse 5. Okay, so verses 1 to 5, he establishes there is a real need to be faithful to the message of the cross, and there's a real need to be humble as we assess the ministry of others, because, because it's God's salvation, it, what matters is that we're faithful to him, and, and because it's God's judgment, what matters is his opinion. Okay, what, what does that mean for Corinth, verses 6 to 7? Now, brothers and sisters, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit. So you may learn the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have you did not receive? And if you did not receive it, then why do you boast as though you did? In other words, verse 6, right, what does this mean for you? Now, the second half of verse, five, uh, verse 6 is a little bit of a head scratcher. I mean, what does he mean? So that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. This phrase, what is written, is always, always used by Paul to refer to Scripture. And that really helps us understand what's going on. I think his point is, look, the church in Corinth is moving in a decidedly unbiblical direction and is approving of and going after ministers and speakers and writers who teach things that are decidedly unbiblical. And so Paul keeps quoting the Old Testament five times already he's done it. As if to say, look, the stuff I keep saying about the cross is at the center of everything. This isn't something I've just made up. This is the whole message of the Bible points towards here. The whole Old Testament builds towards the cross. And so, look, stick to the Bible. Stick to what is written. Assess the, the ministers and the ministries that you like by, does it fit with the Bible? Now, he's saying to the super spiritual Corinthians, look, stop arrogantly assuming you don't need the Bible because you've got the Holy Spirit and he'll lead you into all truth. It's similar to the point really about conscience not being 100% reliable in verse 4. Uh, in chapter 2, verse 11, if you flick back a page, you'll see chapter 2, 11. Who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. So look, only God can reveal the thoughts of God. And he's chosen to do so in what is written in the Bible. 
Now, if we get that, we'll, we'll stick to ministries which are cross-centered, but also we'll be humble and we'll not get too excited about human ministers, verse 7, uh, trading, getting puffed up about being a follower of one versus the other. Because we'll recognize they're not the sources of God's truth. They're not the, the ones who, who have this direct connection with God and the truth goes from God to the minister and to the congregation. He says, no, 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 they're just pipelines. God's truth is in God's word and the ministers bring that word to you. Faithful teachers, faithful ministers are like the donkey in Luke chapter 19. You know, the donkey Jesus rides onto Jerusalem. It's a wonderful privilege for the donkey. Gets to have the savior of the world ride on him and bring the savior of the world to the people. But there's nothing really impressive about the donkey. It's just a donkey. Corinthian leaders are all, look at me, I'm amazing. I can reveal the mysteries of God to you. And Paul says, look, even the most impressive of them is it's just a particularly good-looking donkey with, a, with a, a lovely sounding bray. They've got no spiritual value of their own. The only way that this minister can, can bring forgiveness and eternal life to you is if he just faithfully brings Jesus. He can't do it. He's just a donkey. It's the Jesus who rides on him that you really need. So Paul says, don't boast in impressive ministers. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ that's powerful. It's the cross of Christ that saves you, not the minister who tells you about Jesus. And verse 7, remember too that their ministries and yours, all of ours for that matter, they're given by God. How can we be proud about what has just been given to us? We didn't earn it. It was given by God. So he says, faithfully teach the message of the cross. That's what God wants from us. And secondly, faithfully live the life of the cross. Let's play a little game. Uh, spot the difference. Spot the difference. Two pictures of the Christian life come up in verses 8 to 13. Can you see the slight, subtle difference between these two visions of the Christian life? Verse 8, already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. You've begun to reign, and that without us. How I wish you really had begun to reign, so that we might also reign with you. Vision one. Vision two. For it seems to me that God has put us to apostles on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. We've been made a spectacle to the whole universe, angels as well as to human beings. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored, we are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We're in rags. We're brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We've become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. Not hard to spot the difference. There's two pretty contrasting views of what the Christian life is. Everything you want, rich and reigning, versus literally something you scrape off your shoe from the street. Which is the genuine vision of Christianity? The Corinthian one or the apostles one? I can read your minds and you're wrong, actually. Both. Both are absolutely true genuine visions of Christianity. So what's the problem? The key word are the words about time. Do you see in verse 8, already 
already, verse 11 to 13, to this very hour in verse 11, verse 13, right up to this moment. You see, the Corinthians are not wrong to see the Christian life is is about being rich and full and reigning with Jesus. They're just wrong about when that happens. They're confusing life on this earth now with life in the future in God's new creation paradise. If you trust in Christ, one day you will reign. You'll rule the universe with him. One day you'll be full, like after the greatest Christmas meal. One day you'll be rich beyond the dreams of the greatest tech entrepreneur. But not yet. Not here. Not now. And Paul's point here is don't expect on earth what God has promised for heaven. Many of us have been studying in church uh, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. And Jesus begins uh, with the Beatitudes, which talk about both the Corinthian view of Christianity and the apostles' view, Paul's view, the true view. And they put them in the right perspective. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are the poor in heart, for they will see God. He carries on, rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. Two very different visions of Christianity and the difference is the when, the when. Don't expect on earth what God has promised for heaven. Now, the theological term for the Corinthian era is over-realized eschatology. Uh, What does that mean other than a game-winning score in Scrabble? Now, um, eschatology means last things. Over-realized eschatology just means thinking that you have things that are really for the future right now thinking that the blessings promised for heaven are ours now on earth. And it's a dangerously seductive error. Why do I say it's dangerous? Well, imagine what will happen if you're going on holiday this summer, an amazing holiday, uh, in a villa with a private pool overlooking the Mediterranean. Absolutely incredible, but you know the journey is going to be awful. Um, They're renovating the airport, so they're It's going to be a a massive scrum. It'll be like the northern line on a hot, sweaty summer's day. And it's a very early start. And it's an un-air-conditioned bus up a windy pass to get there in the end. And you don't tell the children. You just tell them how wonderful the holiday is going to be, how lovely the pool is, and just how glorious it'll be. When you rouse them at 3.45 and drag them onto the train and squeeze them into the the rowdy charter jet and, and then put them in into the sweaty, unair-conditioned bus, you might hear a little voice of complaint. A murmur of dissent may emerge because the reality is rather different from the expectation. You developed over-realized eschatology in your children, and now they're pretty unhappy. It's only a holiday. But what if you've led people to think, or you've been led to think, that the Christian life will be a life of heaven? What then when cancer strikes or unemployment, or the chronic overburdens of looking after aging parents or struggling children. We'll do more than just complain. We'll give up. We'll give up. God has saved us for, well, an unimaginably rich, blessed eternity in paradise. 
but he describes the journey there as taking up our cross, hardship and self-denial. It's a terrible danger in an affluent culture without persecution. We feel too often in the West as if we can have everything the Bible says and everything this world offers. And we love to hear that we can have everything now. And churches like that are just fantastic to be part of. They're entertaining, they're uplifting with all the talk of helping us achieve our potential of God is on your side, he has this wonderful plan for you and you have a destiny to shape the world. But if all the talk is of victory now and not of brokenness and self-sacrifice, if it's all about fulfilling yourself and not about denying yourself, if it's all about success and not about faithfulness, then you have to say that's very different from the faithful image of Christianity that Paul presents. And you have to fear what will happen when the realities of life hit people who've been filled with those expectations. Jesus said in Mark 8.34, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Not only the pattern of life for ministers, but for all who would be disciples of Jesus Christ. Okay, he starts to apply it in the last few verses. Firstly, imitate cross-shaped lives, verses 14 to 17. We'll deal with these briefly. I'm writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I've sent to you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. He speaks harshly because he loves them and he doesn't want them to be destroyed. He knows the only way to heaven is Christ and he knows the only way to heaven is to take up the cross. And so he says, look, Timothy's going to remind you what I taught and how I lived. They were the same thing. It was the cross was what I taught and the cross was how I lived. And that, it should be no surprise that the true way of life in Christ is going to be a way of life like Christ. Verse 17, my way of life in Christ, which agrees with what I teach. We need to remind each other of this, as Paul reminds them, because it's not attractive, is it? You can have... Corinthian, everything's going to be wonderful, Christianity message, or I can tell you it's going to be hard and it's going to require self-denial and struggle. Which do you want to hear? Well, Paul says, forget what you want to hear. What's true? We need to remind ourselves of the truths because it's very unattractive sometimes. It's a wonderful opportunity on Book Sunday. Summer is a great time for reading for most of us to at least catch up on a little reading. And so why not get something that'll help you on the holiday, as well as a trashy novel that we'd all read first, the popular important book by Yuval Nori that everyone talks about but no one actually reads. Also, why not buy a good Christian biography, which will encourage you to live this way, which celebrates those who didn't go for power and glory, but who lived by the cross, who didn't seek comfort, which just means mediocrity in the eyes of God. People like Susie Spurgeon. It's good to be reminded how beautiful and valuable it is to live God's way. To be reminded that these are the lives through which God is really at work. Imitate cross-shaped lives 
the lives of those around you, the lives of those from history. Encourage one another in it. And lastly, look to the cross for power. Now, these last verses, I think, are very interesting because I can imagine when the church at Corinth heard this, they would have felt pretty deflated. They loved power and impressiveness, and they're being told, no, 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 follow cross-shaped ministers, cross-shaped lives. Oh, just trade, trade down from the, the wow and the amazing to the ordinary and the difficult. But as Paul reveals here, this is not to turn from powerful Christianity to pathetic Christianity. It's to turn from what is impressive but empty to God's true power. Verse 18. Some of you have become arrogant as if I were not coming to you. But I will come to you very soon if the Lord is willing. And then you will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline or with love and with a gentle spirit? There's lots going on here, but one big point. Ironically, these impressive ministries they love have no real power. No real power to deal with sin. No real power to overcome temptation. No real power to bring eternal life. A few years ago, hiking, I was caught in a blizzard, and it was an incredibly impressive sight as this wall of wind and just whiteout exploded into our faces. The wind was so strong you could barely stand up. Within an hour, it was waist-deep snow basically everywhere. Extraordinary, hugely impressive spectacle. 24 hours later, there was nothing to be seen of it. All gone. Hugely impressive, no lasting impact. A month or two later, that same year, I stood in a glacier in the Alps. Very unimpressive. You can't even feel it's moving. It goes at a few inches a year. Seems like nothing. Gouges out entire mountains over time. The cross of Christ looks very unimpressive. It sounds very unimpressive. It feels very weak. But this is where death is defeated. This is where the power of sin is broken. And this is where Satan is conquered. If you want real power, look to the cross that's where you'll find it. Now, you and I here, we'll all have different lives. God's call on all of us is different. We'll all have different experiences in terms of health and relationships and finance. But the summary of the Christian life is that it is taking up the cross. The crown of glory is for later. The justly famous words of the German pastor and martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer, there will be no crown wearers in heaven who were not cross bearers on earth. But this life is just, it's just a blip in an eternity. And so do not give up or become discouraged. See, this letter that calls us back to the cross of Christ, 1 Corinthians, it's so much the message of it. Come back to the cross. It finishes with an enormous, glorious, long chapter, the longest chapter in the New Testament on the resurrection, our beautiful hope. So do not give up or become discouraged. Because as we take up our cross and follow Paul and faithful ministers and the Lord Jesus Christ, we know for sure that there will be resurrection glory and a crown forevermore. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you that. The cross is not weakness, 
The cross is your power to bring salvation for all. And so we pray that we would not be tempted away by the sweet lies, the half-truths that promise us a life of ease and comfort and everything blessing now. We pray instead that we would look to the cross for your power and we would be prepared to wait for resurrection glory, confident that it will surely come just as the Lord Jesus rose again. Amen.